start uh, to face a problem and try to figure out how to do it. For example, it could be fixing a leak in your bathtub. It could be trying to braid your daughter's hair, trying to do the rainbow loom thing, and trying to figure out how to do it. Where do you turn for advice? Where do you turn for expert instructional video? The internet or YouTube? I remember that over the, over the last couple of months ago, our furnace broke down and the temperature started to plummet to 58 degrees. And, you know, it was getting a little bit cold and I was a little bit too cheap to call the repairman. So, like any of y'all would do, y'all start taking a look at YouTube trying to get some instructional videos in terms of how to fix the problem. But, how about evangelism? To where do we turn to for a paradigm or for some instruction in terms of how we go about doing it? And we find that in today's passage in Acts 13 itself, Paul presents us with a model of how he goes about doing his evangelistic preaching. And he tells us that ultimately we have to boldly proclaim the gospel for it is God's word of salvation to the world. And Paul tells us here what he says and what is the response that will happen when we say it. Now, in this passage here, you know, that, that we take a look at, we don't see the word gospel at all. The word gospel doesn't appear. In fact, in the entire book of Acts, the word gospel only appears two times. Instead of the word gospel, Luke prefers to use the language of the word of God or the word of Israel. So in the book of Acts, it appears 21 times. And even in a passage, the language, the word of God or the word of the Lord appears four times. Now you ask yourself, why does Luke prefer to use the language, the word of God or the word of the Lord? And I think he prefers to use it because... The word of the God or the word of the Lord emphasizes the divine origin and the authority of the gospel. And the word here mediates God's presence and authority. When you take a look at the book of Acts itself, you see that ultimately the word here does appears as the object of verbs. So for example, you have the apostles proclaiming the word. You have the apostles proclaiming the word. It's something passive. But Acts also presents us with a different, slightly different view in that ultimately the word is also the subject of the verb. So the language here, you have the word of God grew in Acts 6-7. You also have it in chapter 24, the word of God grew and multiplied, and then the word of the Lord grew and became strong. And then what's interesting is that in today's passage, we have this language here where the Gentiles honored, or rather they glorified the word of the Lord. Now that's a little bit strange, glorifying the word of the Lord, because in the book of Acts, only two people are glorified and that it's God the Father and Jesus. But here, the word of God is glorified. And ultimately, so in Acts, you know, the gospel as the word of God is not just a message. It is not just something passive. But as the word of God, the gospel is active. It mediates the power of God. It mediates the presence of God. It is a divine agent of God 
that conquers the hearts of men and that conquers the world as it spreads everywhere. And Luke tells us then to boldly proclaim the gospel, for it is the word of God for salvation to the world. And Paul's sermon in Acts 13 then, it's the first, it's also the longest missionary preaching that Paul has. And it sets an example. It sets a framework of how he would do it in all of the other cities that he visits later. And so Paul tells us that in this passage here, that what we must proclaim, that is the content and also the response, what we can expect when we actually proclaim the word of God. So we'll take a look at the first part in terms of the content. And that ultimately, what are we to proclaim is that the word of God offers salvation through Jesus. Now, picking up through the story of Acts 13, from basically, we have it that they were at Paphos there. Let's see if I can get it. They were at Paphos, and then from Paphos, they went up to Perga, and at Perga, John Mark decided to bail, and he goes all the way down to Jerusalem. But then Paul and Barnabas then goes up to Antioch Pisidia, Now, why did they go to Antioch Pisidia? Probably because Sergius Paulus, the proconsul at Cyprus here, had some connections with Antioch Pisidia and probably sent them letters of introduction. So when they get to Antioch Pisidia, Paul then, first thing is he goes to the synagogue and then he is invited to give a sermon. Then ultimately the sermon, Paul's sermon, can be broken down into three parts. It's a long sermon, so I'm not going to read it. It can be broken down into three parts here. And you can see that the broken down is basically broken down into three parts by the address to the people. So it's broken down in verse 16, where he says, fellow Israelites and Gentiles. And in 26, again, there's another direct address to the people. And then in verse 38, there's another direct address to the people. Ultimately, what we have is a three-point sermon. Like any good preachers, Paul uses a three-point sermon. And the first point ultimately is that Jesus' Savior is the climax of history. Second main point is that Jesus' identity as Savior is confirmed by Scripture and by his resurrection. And then lastly is that God's offer of forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in Jesus. We'll take a look at each one in, uh, bit by bit. All right, so let's take a look at Paul's first point here. And that ultimately his first point is that Jesus, the Savior, is the climax of history. Now here, when Paul rehearses the history, which shows God always taking the initiative, and God is always the subject of the verb. So you have that God chose our ancestors. He made them prosper in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with their disobedience. He brought them into the promised land. He provided judges which functioned as leaders. He provided kings for them. And the ultimate king is David. And now, out of David, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. You see, Paul rehearses the history. But the trajectory of this history ultimately finds its fulfillment, finds its goal, end point in Jesus. That everything basically is finding its end point in Jesus. And we used to recognize this. We recognize it. In history, how do we denote time? We have B.C. and A.D. B.C. is before Christ. A.D. is out of domino, which is, means in the year of the Lord. And here, you know, when we look at history, sometimes we get confused as to what is happening to this world. 
It is like a jumbled jigsaw puzzle. But that God is telling us that the key to unlocking this jigsaw puzzle is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. That ultimately, from the creation of the world, it is always pointing towards Jesus. And since Jesus came in his death, resurrection, and exaltation, it is again pointing again to Jesus when he will come again in the second coming. So all of history is basically pointing towards Jesus. Now the second point that Paul makes here is that ultimately Jesus' identity as a savior is confirmed by scripture and by his resurrection. It's confirmed by scripture in the verse 26 to 29, and then it's confirmed by this resurrection in 30 to 37. Here, in taking a look at the confirmed by scripture here, you know, it's one thing for Jesus to confirm his identity by doing things that really showed the fulfillment of scripture. So he did some things like that. For example, on Palm Sunday, he would ride his donkey into Jerusalem itself, and it was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. But it is another thing when people who do not believe in Jesus, when in the very things that they do, they fulfill scripture. These were the people that were against in Jesus who did not believe in his identity. But in the very things that he did, that they did, they fulfilled scripture. And that's why Paul says here, ultimately, that yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the word of the prophets. And then later on, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they fulfilled the word here. So that ultimately, Jesus' identity is confirmed by the actions of those people who were directly against him. So in their very actions, they fulfilled the prophecy regarding Jesus. But not only that, Paul goes on to say that Jesus' identity as a savior is confirmed by his resurrection victory. And so ultimately here, he says that, how can we be sure that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah? His people didn't recognize him. In fact, they thought that he was the very opposite of what he claimed. And so the people crucified him. They considered him as a criminal. But God said otherwise. And God gave positive proof that he is the Messiah by raising him from the dead. And so we see here that ultimately God raised him from the dead. He was seen, and that ultimately there were witnesses to that. And the witnesses here ultimately here, as Paul is saying, if you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, go look for these witnesses. Go look for them, and they can tell you what had happened. Now, eyewitnesses are important for testimony. In fact, we even use it today in criminal cases. But, you know, you say, one eyewitness, not, maybe not reliable, hallucination. But 500 eyewitnesses, now that must be something remarkable then. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500. It's the same thing with the Holocaust. When the Holocaust happened, there were one or two reports about it from eyewitnesses. But people really didn't believe that such things could happen. But when more and more eyewitness reports start pouring in, they ultimately realized that it was incontrovertible, that ultimately that it was true. And so here Jesus is ultimately, his identity is confirmed by his 
resurrection. The third point that ultimately that Paul makes here is that God offers forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in Jesus. Paul is telling the Jews that were there, you are all trying to make yourself right with God by following the law of Moses, but that's no way that you can make yourself right by following the law of Moses. On the contrary, forgiveness of sins is only made possible through Jesus. The gospel is good news that God forgives sins. Therefore, God forgives us of our sins when we repent and believe in Jesus. It's important to note here that the gospel is God's answer to address the issue of sin. To address the issue of humanity's rebellion against God. And we have not preached the gospel if we have not talked about sin or our rebellion. So the gospel is not just to make you a better man or better woman. The gospel is not to help you to lead a fulfilling life. It is not just to help you have a positive self-image. It is not just to address your holiness. It's not about caring for the poor and oppressed. It is all this. Don't get me wrong, it's all this. But it is more than this. And the gospel is, first of all, theological. And that ultimately it repairs the relationship between you and God. And it proclaims the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God that is possible through Jesus. If we do not repent and believe, if we remain unconvinced about God's purposes in Jesus, if we scoff at the gospel, we will face God's judgment and we'll face God's wrath and perish. And so, for those of you who are here, who have never come to faith in Jesus, do know that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Do know that you can be set free from the guilt that you have. Guilt of doing wrong, guilt of rebellion against God. Do know that there is forgiveness in Jesus. And I encourage you, I implore you to come and talk to me or talk to one of the pastors about it. That in the name of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Now Paul's missionary preaching presents us with a model of how we are how we can proclaim the gospel. Gives us three basic ideas. That Jesus is the climax of history. That Jesus' identity as Savior is confirmed by Scripture and his resurrection. And that God offers forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in Jesus. But if we were to drill down a little bit further, we can find out that there are eight elements in terms of what it means to what the gospel means. If someone to to ask you, what is the gospel? How would you respond? And here, in this passage here, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, we can find out that there are eight elements. The first one, ultimately, is that the gospel is Christological, and that the gospel is fundamentally Christ-centered. If we don't proclaim Christ, especially his death and resurrection, we have not proclaimed the gospel, period. The gospel is Christological. Secondly, the gospel is theological. The gospel has its source in God the Father. And the gospel is to address the issue of sin, humanity's rebellion against God. If we don't address the fundamental problem, ultimately, again, we have not proclaimed the gospel. So Christological, 
it is theological. Thirdly, it is scriptural. And that the gospel is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. That ultimately a presentation of the gospel must cover the entire biblical narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. Fourthly, the gospel is historical. In that Jesus' death and resurrection are historical events. If Jesus did not die and rise from the dead in space and in time, then we are all fools and that our faith is in vain. And so that ultimately our gospel is historical. It is about an event that happened in space and time. Fifthly, the gospel is apostolic in that our Christian faith and the gospel is ultimately traced not to the Reformation, it's not traced to Thomas in India itself, but ultimately it is traced to the apostles, and they were the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is apostolic. Again, the gospel is personal, and that the offer of salvation must be personally received. Just as Jews cannot rely on their heritage as God's people, but must make a personal confession and affirmation of their faith in Jesus, so also must you make a personal affirmation and confession of faith in Jesus. You cannot rely on your parents' faith. You must make a personal affirmation. Next, you find that the gospel is universal. It is for both Jews and Gentiles. It is ultimately for all the peoples of the world. And lastly, the gospel is eschatological in that it concerns this present life for sure. But it's more than that. It concerns and talks about eternal blessedness and also talks about eternal judgment. So there, what is the gospel? It is all these things. But ultimately, we could say that it boils down that the gospel is God's word of salvation in Jesus for the world. The gospel is God's word of salvation for Jesus in the world. Now, let's take a look then at the second part here with the response. Now, the word of God, Paul says, will meet with both resistance and acceptance. After Paul's preaching, some Jews accepted the gospel and urged Paul to preach the word again in the next Sunday. Not Sunday, the next Sabbath. All right. But when the whole city gathered together at the synagogue, and the whole city, that means there are a lot of Gentiles, all right? When the whole city gathered at the synagogue here, the Jewish leaders became jealous at the success of Paul. And so they contradicted his message, and then they ultimately heaped abuse on him. What is Paul's response? When he was rejected, he ultimately turned towards the Gentiles, and he began to tell them ultimately in terms of this quotation from Isaiah 49. He says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul considers himself as a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see the parallel structure there? Light, salvation, Gentiles, ends of the earth. And it tells us that Gentiles is the same as the ends of the earth. Which means that ultimately, in the mission to the Gentiles, we have the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that in the mission to the Gentiles itself, we see the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying in Acts 1.8. 
So when the Gentiles heard what Paul was saying, they rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord here. Now Paul's usual pattern is always to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So that even after this incident in Antioch, Pisidia, in whatever city that he visited to, that was his operating paradigm. Ultimately, you ask yourself, why did Paul go to the Jews first? Why did Paul go to the Jews first? I think there are two reasons. Firstly, he's like them. He's a Jew too. Moreover, he was trained as a rabbi under the greatest leader, the greatest rabbi at that time, Gamaliel. And so there was a natural connection. There was a common background for it. And that's why he went to the synagogue always. But there's other reason that ultimately that he believed that there was a theological priority for preaching the gospel to the Jews. Because the Christian gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews, to Israel. And Jews everywhere have to write the prior right to hear what God has done for them. So, but when he gets rejected by the Jews, then he always turns towards the Gentiles. And so the principle of first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, we have it even in Romans 1.16. Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. What is the relevance of this for us at North Sub. What is the relevance for this? And I think that the significance of this principle for North Sub is as follows. Given the theological priority of first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles, and given the second fact that we live in a community with a heavy Jewish population, if North Sub is to make an effective impact for the kingdom of God within the North Shore, our evangelistic strategy must include some ministry to the Jewish population within our neighborhood. It must include some kind of strategy towards the Jewish population in our neighborhood. Now, Paul ultimately shows us here that there are two different responses when we proclaim the gospel. There will be those who accept the word of God and those who reject it. When we faithfully proclaim the gospel, we will face opposition. Some of you may have faced it already. And I suspect that one of the reasons why some of us are hesitant about sharing the gospel with others is because we are afraid of rejection and we are afraid of opposition. We all want to be liked. You all want to be accepted. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. And so one of the things that I pray for, for myself, is that I would have the boldness to proclaim the gospel. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. Am I trying to please men? And I'm trying to win the favor of men or to win the favor of God? Am I trying to please men or to please God? If I were to please men, I would not be a servant of God. And so I make that a prayer for myself. And I pray that you all would make that a prayer for yourselves too. That your responsibility as servants of God, of which all of us are, is to please God rather than to please men. And that when we are to please God, then we faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we can, despite opposition that we may face. But at the same time, we know that although there might be opposition, 
there would also be people who accepted. And when people accepted, and as Jesus tells us, there will be rejoicing. The angels will rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, in today's passage here, Paul gives us an example of how he does ministry, how he does evangelism. And he encourages us to boldly proclaim the gospel, for it is God's word of salvation to the world. He tells us what we must proclaim, and he also tells us the response that we can expect when we faithfully proclaim it. So the gospel is God's word for salvation to the world. As the word of God... The gospel is not something passive, it is active. Remember the phrase in Hebrews 4? The word of God, it's alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so as the word of God, the gospel mediates the presence of God. It is the divine agent of God that conquers the hearts of men, that conquers the hearts of the world as it spreads forth to the ends of the earth. And that ultimately... This passage is an encouragement for us to proclaim the gospel truthfully, to proclaim the gospel faithfully, and that we just sit back and let God do the job. So let us boldly proclaim the gospel for it's God's word of salvation to the world. Let me pray for us.